called Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, uh, so what are we doing here? Well, we're considering this question, can we trust the Gospels? And uh, a lot of you heard Justin's announcement a couple of weeks ago where he did that sort of inflammatory thing by starting off saying, Jesus never existed. And then said, well, actually, that's not the position that we take here at, at Mercy House. And so, you know, built into that course title is the implicit answer that we think is the case. Yes. Uh, but we want to uh, add some content to that. How do we know that we can trust the Gospels? We want to give you some answers to that kind of question and some tools. Uh, so Justin's going to do a sort of introductory uh, survey today of what are those tools? How do we go about determining uh, whether or that we can trust the Gospels? And then a lot of what we're going to do this, uh, through this class is we're going to put to practice uh, using those tools, looking at the Gospels. Uh, so we'll look at various passages and, and see that, they are, that there's good evidence that they are historically reliable, and we'll see the different types of evidence and things like that. Um, so one thing we're going to do in this class or that we would like to do is uh, not just to talk at you the whole time, but also to have you participate in uh, putting these tools to use. So we're going to help teach you how to, like what are the different kinds of evidence we're looking for and how do you go about looking for these things. Uh, but we would like to do some student presentations uh, we're going to call these evidence summaries. Uh, so it's a low stakes kind of thing where think starting next week we'll sign up. Uh, you'll just pick a week in the class. We'll have a course schedule. And you'll pick a week where uh, you'll know ahead of time what's the scripture that we're going to be looking at that week. And, and you'll commit to doing a five-minute presentation of a summary of the evidence. Uh, for the historical reliability of that bit of scripture. Uh, so you'll do a little bit of research on your own and tell us about it. Uh, so it'll be a, an opportunity for you to be able to put to practice some of the tools that, that you're getting in these evidence summaries. Um, yeah, those won't start until the fourth week of the class. And like I said, they're supposed to be very low stakes. Uh, it's hopefully a way for you to put these tools to pr into practice and uh, to feel like this course is something that you have some buy-in on, and but also not to give you lots of extra things to do. Some of you are students and have homework already. All right. Okay, so as advertised, this class is about whether we can trust the Gospels, and more specifically, it's about whether we can trust the Gospels when they make historical claims. When they make claims like Jesus said this, Jesus did that, somebody did this to Jesus, stuff like that. Um, this is a really important issue for Christians, uh, both for Christian faith and for Christian practice. And I'll tell you why. It's important for Christian faith because 
many of the sort of central and defining doctrines of Christianity depend on historical claims in the Gospels. So obvious example, the resurrection of Jesus. One of the main historical claims in the Gospels, one of their most momentous historical claims, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the Apostle Paul says that Christianity actually stands or falls with whether that claim is true. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. So that's an obvious example of how, like, the doctrines of Christianity depend on historical claims. There are also some less obvious examples. Uh, so, for example, take the deity of Christ, or the Trinity, or the atonement, or salvation by grace through faith, right? All of these, like, distinctively Christian ideas. Those doctrines were all developed in the early church by people who were trying to make sense of who Jesus was and what he had done and what he was trying to tell us. And if you take away all that information about Jesus and say, well, you don't really know who he was and what he did and what he was trying to tell us, then we lose the data that those doctrines were developed to explain. And we're kind of left in a situation where, like, okay, why think that they're true? I mean, they might be, but they're just ideas that are floating out there in empty space, in a sense. So, the question of whether we can trust the historical claims in the Gospels is very important to Christian faith. It's also important to what's sometimes called Christian practice. And here's what I mean. So, as Christians, we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus, right? Now, try to imagine being a disciple of someone that you know almost nothing about. You don't know who they were. You don't know how they lived their life. You don't know what they taught. I don't think that there really is any meaningful sense in which you could be the disciple of a person like that. So if we as Christians are going to be disciples of Jesus, we better be able to have information about who Jesus was and how he lived his life and what he taught. And our main sources for that kind of information are the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So, this question of whether we can trust the historical claims in the gospels is important um, for Christian practice as well as Christian faith. It's not just relevant to what we believe, it's also relevant to how we live our lives. So, this issue, though, it's not just, um, it's not just important, it's also contested, which is to say that not everybody agrees about whether we can trust the Gospels as historical sources, and not everybody agrees, like, to what extent we can trust them as historical sources, and I take it that this is not going to be a surprise to anybody, right? You all live in the same world that I do. I expect that we have all encountered at one point or another claims about Jesus and the Gospels and what we can know about these things that maybe don't sound like the claims that you usually hear at church, right? Um, in fact, I would like to hear, do any of you have any, like, what are some things that you've heard about the Gospels that you might think, oh, I'm not sure about that, um, or that have made you wonder or ask questions or doubt? What are some things that you've heard? 
Yes, so the idea that you can find kind of the main themes of Jesus' life in all these pagan myths that were floating around around the same time, and it's, okay, so it looks like this is just kind of uh, a modification of some legends that were already out there. Yeah, good. What else? Excellent. Good. So there's worries about whether the Gospels even match up with each other. Can they even, they even agree about who Jesus was and what he said and what he did? It seems like there are conflicts between them. They don't always say the same thing. And then also there's this worry you said about like, well, you know, who is it that's writing all this stuff about Jesus? Were they even there when Jesus was around? How much longer after the fact was this? You know, who knows what's been forgotten, what's been made up in the meantime? Yeah, that kind of stuff. What else have we heard? Yes, okay, so there's this worry about like, well, if we're translating the Gospels from one language to the next, like, oh, shoot, you know, how do we know that, you know, people translated them well, right? Mistakes can creep in. And actually, I think a lot of times the people who are worried about this are actually confusing that worry with a different one. Because when it comes to translations, if you're worried about does our language reflect like the original language, that's easy to check. Um, you can actually go and look at Greek versions of the New Testament and see exactly what they say. I've got one with me tonight. Um, the real worry that I think lies behind this, and I think people sometimes just confuse these two things, is, is not translation, it's transmission. It's that in order to keep the Bible around, we had to keep making copies of it. It doesn't matter whether we were copying it and translating it into a different language or just keeping it in the same language. You had to keep making copies of it so that it would survive. And every time you copy it, there's some risk that maybe it won't get copied quite exactly right. So that's something that people worry about. Okay, good. Anything else? Okay, good. So you've heard these worries about like, well, wait a minute, there's miracles in the Gospels. And some of these miracle stories, maybe all of these miracle stories, I mean, that's not the sort of thing you see happening, like, you know, when you're walking to church or, you know, whatever, right? I mean, this is just not the ordinary sort of historical event. Um, so you might think the, the fact that the Gospels contain miracle claims makes them harder to believe than if we were just reading Thucydides or, you know, Julius Caesar or something like that, right? Okay, good. Anything else? All right, um, so clearly there are a lot of different viewpoints out there. And there are a lot of different worries that people have about the Gospels and whether they're accurate and whether we can trust them and whether they've been preserved carefully and so on. In order to kind of simplify things, uh, for the purposes of this class, we're going to focus primarily on two views. Um, and I've come up with names for these views that are not like official names. They're just the names that we're going to use. And they're kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think they'll help us remember what's going on. We're going to call them the trustworthy view and the untrustworthy view. Uh, let me write this up here. All right, so trustworthy view Oops. and then the untrustworthy view. Okay, um, there are lots and lots and lots of different views out there. There are all kinds of different positions that people will hold about the Gospels and to what extent we can trust them and where they came from and stuff like that. Uh, but the two views that we're going to talk about 
they're, I get the sense that these are like the two most common views, especially among academics. So um, by focusing on these, I think we'll be able to cover most of the ground that we want to cover. And uh, you know, other views will probably come up occasionally. We're not gonna ignore them, but we wanna somehow manage the amount of content that we're gonna attempt to cover. So we're gonna focus mostly on these two. So let me tell you what I mean by these terms, like what these views actually are. Um, so the trustworthy view is the view, uh, the view that we hold at Mercy House. It's also the view that you will usually find at theologically conservative institutions. And that view basically says this. The Gospels are extremely historically accurate documents. When they tell you that Jesus did this or Jesus said that or whatever, you can take those claims to the bank. You can trust them because the Gospels are telling you what actually happened. They're getting it right, and they're really good at that. And there's a reason why they're so accurate according to the trustworthy view, and the reason is that on this view, the Gospels were written by people who, first of all, were aiming to tell the truth about what Jesus said and did, and secondly, they were in a good position to do that. And the reason they were in a good position to do that uh, is just that um, they were either eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry or they were in direct contact with other people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. That's the trustworthy view in a nutshell. Now, the untrustworthy view, this is the view that you will most often find among uh, scholars at uh, secular institutions and theologically liberal institutions. It is not the crazy uh, view that Jesus never existed. Um, that is a fringe view. It's not the even crazier view that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and had kids with her. That is the view of one novelist, and so far as I know, no one in any academic institution in the history of the world. But here's what this view is. The untrustworthy view says that the Gospels are a mix of historically accurate material and historically inaccurate material. There's some stuff in there that is true and that it's historically uh, reliable information, but it's mixed in with all kinds of embellishments, things that have just been made up, uh, and it's sort of littered with little mistakes. And according to the untrustworthy view, there's a reason why the Gospels are like this. And that reason is that the people who were writing the Gospels were, first of all, not always uh, honest. They weren't always primarily aiming to tell the truth about what Jesus said and did because they had theological axes to grind and sometimes they allowed their, those motivations to influence what they wrote in uh, inappropriate ways. And secondly, not only were they not always aiming to tell the truth, but they also didn't always have access to good sources. In particular, according to the untrustworthy view, the people who wrote the Gospels 
were not eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. They were not in direct contact with people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. They probably didn't even live in first century Palestine. And the sources that they relied on were oral traditions that had circulated for decades throughout the Roman Empire after Jesus died, mostly circulating among, again, people who were not witnesses of of Jesus' ministry and weren't residents of first century Palestine. And those oral traditions had been distorted over time, sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident. And the people who came along and wrote the Gospels took those and used them to uh, make their their biographies of Jesus. And then sometimes, if they didn't like what their sources said, they changed it. And other times, they just made stuff up. That's the untrustworthy view, in a nutshell. Okay, what questions do you have about these two views? Yeah, there are other views in between. Um, uh, In fact, in theory, you could probably fall anywhere on the spectrum of like how trustworthy are they. Uh, again, I think that these are, are the more common views, right? But yeah, you could say that, for example, um, the Gospels are pretty good sources and they're usually getting things right, but there are a few major, you know, errors here and there, right? And, and that might be something that's kind of towards the trustworthy end, but not as far towards it as the view that I was describing um, uh, yeah, so there's, I mean, there's, there'll be variations like that that, that people will sometimes hold. Uh, did that help? Okay, cool. One of the things about the Bible is that it's a collection of a bunch of different documents written by a bunch of different people in different circumstances. So there isn't like a short answer to the question, who wrote the Bible, if what we're talking about is like the human authors and not God, right? But... Um, since in this class we're focusing on the four gospels matthew mark luke and john so who wrote those maybe that's a way of sort of narrowing the question down a bit right and how were those people related to jesus so according to the untrustworthy view we don't know who they were they were these anonymous people their names are nowhere on the gospels and no one uh, probably not even within decades of their being written knew who actually wrote the Gospels. And certainly today, according to advocates of the untrustworthy view, we haven't the slightest clue who wrote the Gospels. But if you ask somebody who holds to the trustworthy view, you'll probably get a different answer. Um, People who hold the trustworthy view usually say this. There are different views here, and they won't all say the same thing, but here's a common view. Um, They'll usually say that the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel to be written. It was written by John Mark, who shows up in a couple of places in the New Testament. He shows up in Acts. He shows up in the epistles. Um, That John Mark may have actually been uh, the guy who hosted Jesus and his disciples when they were in town uh, in Jerusalem and they had the Last Supper um, the night before Jesus was executed. There's a view that says, there's there's an interesting argument that maybe that was John Mark's house. They did not speak English. They mostly spoke Aramaic. Uh, Sometimes they would have spoken Greek. There's evidence that Jesus probably spoke both Aramaic and Greek, but that's controversial. Some people be like, no, 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 only Aramaic. Uh, uh 
what about him made him trustworthy? Uh, so according to the people who defend the trustworthy view, um, this was actually one of Jesus' disciples. Um, not one of the 12, but one of the, like, the bigger group of people who are Jesus fans while he was alive. So he was up close. He saw these things happen. Um, and also, there's a lot of evidence in the tradition that Mark used Peter as his main source for his gospel. Um, Peter is one of the main disciples of Jesus. He actually became the leader of the church after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven. Um, so Peter uh, was one of the, he was in the, like, the innermost circle of, like, Jesus' friends. Uh, Peter, James, and John were kind of, like, the three that were really close to Jesus. Um, and so the tradition says that, actually, um, Mark went and talked to Peter and interviewed him. And that's where he got his material for the Gospel of Mark. He wrote it all down, and that's where we got it from. If that's true, then the material in the Gospel of Mark comes from a person who was right next to Jesus through his entire ministry. And that is an excellent historical source. That is an unusually excellent historical source. Uh, then the standard story goes on like this. Um, Luke and Matthew were written independently of each other a decade or two later than Mark, and they both used Mark as one of their sources. That is, they used the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark was circulating around the early church, and Matthew and Luke came along, and they took it, and they said, okay, we're going to use this Gospel and some other sources that we've got, and we're going to write our own Gospels that tell you what Mark told you, but also some other stuff, too. Um, and traditionally, Matthew, uh, the person who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was Matthew the tax collector, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And also, traditionally, the person who wrote the Gospel of Luke, as well as the book of Acts, was Luke the physician, who was supposed to be a companion of Paul. Um, and he shows up in the book of Acts. Uh, so Paul was... We're going to end up talking a lot about Paul later, but he was, um, he was a convert to Christianity after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven. He started out by persecuting the Christians. He thought Christianity is a bad thing, this whole Jesus movement, I've got to get rid of it, and he went around and persecuted everybody. And then um, there's this scene that you can read about in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 9, though it's also recounted twice more in the same book, uh, where God, well, actually, well, Jesus speaks to Paul from heaven while he's on the road to persecute some other Christians, and Paul ends up becoming a Christian after this experience. Okay, um, and then finally, Gospel of John, right? Is that where I left off? Mark, Matthew, Luke. Okay, John is traditionally the last gospel to be written of the four canonical gospels, probably in the 90s A.D., um, and then the traditional claim is that John was written by John of Zebedee, so one of the three, like, of Jesus' inner circle, the Peter, James, John group, uh, and that, there's definitely good evidence for that, but even within the trustworthy view kind of camp, you'll get people who disagree. Some people have said, no, actually, it was Lazarus who wrote the Gospel of John, 
Some people thought that it's this other guy named John who was a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the 12, this guy named John the Elder. Um, but the main view, most of the people who hold the trustworthy view say it was John of Zebedee. Yeah. Yes, all of the Gospels were written after most of the epistles were written. And that's actually an important fact because when we start looking for evidence, one of the things that it's going to be important for us to remember is that the epistles are actually closer up to the events of Jesus' life than the Gospels. So when they say something about Jesus, if that agrees with one of the Gospels, that is a really excellent piece of like confirming evidence of something that the Gospels say. What's that? Oh, right. So the epistles are books in the New Testament. Um, so if you, if you look in the Bible and if you go to the New Testament, you get the Gospels first. And then after the Gospels, you get this book called Acts that kind of tells you what happened after Jesus was resurrected. And then after that, there's a whole bunch of, of little books. Well, some of them are really little. Some of them are not so little. That are called the epistles. And um, those books were letters that some of uh, the Christians wrote to each other in the very earliest years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, so the little books were actually their letters that the Christians were writing to each other uh, right at the very beginning of, of Christianity, like right after Jesus ascended into heaven um, within those first uh, few decades. Uh, some of them do, yeah. And there's, well, I mean, all of this is controversial. So, uh, the well, in terms of who wrote them, right? So there are seven epistles that everybody agrees were written by Paul. And then the rest of the epistles, the people in the trustworthy camp, they think we've got pretty good evidence that they were written by who you will hear about in church, you know, wrote them. So there's... Uh, a bunch of others that are traditionally attributed to Paul, and there's certain ones that are supposed to have been written by Peter, and some that are supposed to have been written by John of Zebedee. Um, but if you go and talk to the people who hold the untrustworthy view, they'll say, nah, we don't think that those people wrote those epistles, or at best, we're not sure if those people wrote those epistles. Um, anyway, it's kind of how it goes <laughs> in that camp. Okay, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think that... So I hesitate to say anything definitive about this because I think that it's hard to answer these questions about like why a certain field of study gets directed in a certain direction. But I think that it probably has a lot to do with just the way that New Testament studies is done these days and the, the just kind of the, the track it's been sent on by um, certain, you know, influential books and authors and so on in the history of this field. A lot of times what you get, it seems to me, in academic fields of study is that people will just sort of inherit views that have been accepted. They'll inherit the existing paradigm. And uh, it takes a lot to change the paradigm. I mean, some of this is well, well known and well studied, but I don't necessarily know a lot about it myself. It, it, but it can take a lot to change an existing paradigm. And so I think that a lot of what's going on in New Testament studies, I think there's a lot, there is a lot of stuff that they're doing that just doesn't make sense to me. It's just weird. Um, and 
and uh, I could direct you to people who can tell you more about this than I can. Um, but uh, I, my guess would be that a lot of it has to do with just, well, people are accepting sort of the established paradigm. And maybe that's not the right paradigm, but it's the one that's there right now. I don't know if that helped. I'm very hesitant to say anything definitive about that subject, but okay. So here's what we're going to do next. If we are going to, and we are going to, proceed through the Gospels assessing these views and trying to figure out, okay, which, if either of them, is right, then we're going to need to know um, how to do that, right? We're going to need to have some idea of how you would tell the difference. Like, do the Gospels fit better with one of these uh, or the other or something else, right? Um, and actually, what we're going to be doing in this class is going to be a lot like uh, detective work. At least that's one way of thinking about it. And that's because we're going to be looking at a bunch of little clues, often just the tiniest little things. Clues that either kind of point towards the trustworthy view or maybe they kind of point towards the untrustworthy view. No one of those clues by itself is going to be decisive. There's no one little clue that, well, that clue just settles it. This view is right, or this view is right. So we definitely want to avoid certain kinds of reactions. I take it that most people here are probably already kind of in the trustworthy camp just because of, you know, the context. We're at Mercy House right now. <laughs> and so I want to be make sure that we're clear that we need to avoid the following reactions. If we come across a clue that seems like it's pointing in the direction of the untrustworthy view, we do not want to just freak out and say, oh no, you know, we've been wrong about all this stuff. Because that's, that would just be a ridiculous inference. Um, one little clue is not going to settle the issue. Similarly, when we find a little clue that seems to be pointing in the direction of the trustworthy view, we do not want to say, aha, proved it, we're right. One little clue is not going to do it. What we need to do, even though we have to look at the clues one at a time, in a sense, is we've got to keep in the back of our minds this sense of, okay, what's the overall force of this evidence as it's accumulating? Are there patterns that are beginning to merge? Uh, em, sorry, emerge? Are there uh, more clues pointing this way than that way? And are, are there a lot more pointing this way than that way? Or is it kind of an even split? You know, so that's what we want to do, right? We don't want to rest any grand conclusions on one little piece of evidence or two little pieces of evidence. We want to look at what is the whole body of evidence as a whole indicating if anything. That makes sense? Awesome. Okay. But if we're going to do any of that, then we got to know what kinds of clues we're looking for, don't we? So, here's what we're going to do with uh, the rest of our time tonight. I'm going to lay out for you the types of clues that you can look for, the types of evidence that we are going to be examining and hunting down as we try to evaluate these two views. I'm going to make two lists. I'm going to, I'm going to make a list of types of evidence that kind of point in favor of the trustworthy view, and I'll put that list 
right here. And then under untrustworthy view, I'll make a list of the types of evidence that would support, uh, to some extent, the untrustworthy view. Uh, so here we go. Here's the first type of evidence that we can look for. This one is pretty straightforward. One thing we can do if we're trying to figure out whether what the Gospels are telling us actually happened is you can look around to see whether anybody else who is writing at about the same time and who is writing independently of the Gospels and especially independently of the Christian community at the time altogether says either, yeah, that happened or no, it didn't, right? You can look for what I'll call direct confirmation or direct disconfirmation of things in the Gospels. So let me just write this up here. And actually, to distinguish this from some later things, we'll call this direct confirmation by external sources. And then under the untrustworthy view, direct disconfirmation by external sources. Um, hold on one second. By external sources, what I mean is sources of historical information that are outside of, that is, external to, the New Testament. So, in other words, in the New Testament, we've got some historical sources, right? Now, there's a question about whether they're good historical sources, and that's what we're discussing. But there are definitely some sources in the New Testament, the Gospels, Acts, the Epistles, that seem to be at least trying to give us some historical information, trying to tell us about things that happened in the past. External sources, in the sense that I'm using it here, means sources like that, but ones that aren't in the Bible. Okay. Um, direct confirmation by external sources, direct disconfirmation by external sources. All right, so easy example of this, or a simple example of this. Um, all of the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And as it turns out, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus and a Roman historian named Tacitus, who are both writing at about the same time that the New Testament was written a little bit later, and who, as far as we know, had nothing to do with the early Christian community. They were, they were completely separate, independent sources. They both tell us exactly the same thing. So that would be a case of direct confirmation by an external source. Now, if they had said something else, if they had said, no, no, Jesus lived you know, to a ripe old age and died of natural causes, that would be a kind of direct disconfirmation by external sources. Um, so that's how that's supposed to work. And right now, just to be clear, I'm only trying to give you an idea of what sort of evidence we're talking about. I am not right now making an argument at all that you know the trustworthy view is true or that the untrustworthy view is true. Not trying to prove anything right now. We're just laying out what kind of evidence are we going to look for in the rest of this class. Okay. Um, next on the list, indirect confirmation or disconfirmation by external sources. Here's what I mean by indirect confirmation or disconfirmation by external sources. Um, I'm going to use an illustration that I'm stealing from Tim McGrew. So, suppose I lock you in a room where you have no access to the internet. And I tell you, I'm not going to let you out until you have accomplished the following task. 
I want you to write a novelette that takes place in 18th century France. And I want it to get the setting of 18th century France like accurate. It's got to be historically believable. So when you talk about in this story that you're making up, when you talk about like the geography or the politics or the religion or the culture of 18th century France, you got to get those details right. They've got to reflect what it was actually like in 18th century France. You also can't just avoid talking about that stuff. I want you to bring up like what kind of coins they were using, how much different things costed, who is holding what political office. I want characters to be traveling around from one place to another and there have to be believable intervals for them to get from point A to point B. I want details about how the culture differs from this place to this place. You've got to get it all right. Okay, now, imagine trying to write that little story. Probably wouldn't go very well, unless you happen to be an expert on 18th century France. It's going to be full of mistakes, just, uh, you know, about the setting in which the story is supposed to have taken place. Okay, now apply that to this. Remember what the untrustworthy view claims about kind of where the Gospels came from and who wrote them. The Gospels are made out of all of these sources that were distorted over the years by people who were not uh, even residents of first century Palestine, much less witnesses of Jesus' ministry. And so if that story is right, if the untrustworthy view, as we're calling it, gets it roughly right about how the Gospels came into existence, you would expect that when you looked at them, you're going to find all kinds of little errors about the setting right? Forget about whether the events they're talking about are true or false, whether Jesus really said or did this. If we want to know, like, is this view roughly the right view? Do they seem to know what they're talking about on things that we can directly confirm about the setting, about the geography and the politics and, and so on of first century Palestine, especially, and this is important, first century Palestine before the year 70, because in the year 70, the Jewish war uh, resulted in the temple being wiped out, and the whole situation was just totally different after that. So if you didn't, you weren't there before 70, and you were like, I'm going to go to first century Palestine and try to make up a story that's believable, everything would be wrong. Okay. Um, that's the indirect stuff. Now, so if you find, so, so what we can do then is we can go through the Gospels and we can look, do they get these little details about the setting right? And insofar as they tend to get them right, that seems to favor the trustworthy view. Because the trustworthy view says that these people were actually there and they're trying to tell us what actually happened. And so you'd expect that they'd tend to get those things right. But on the untrustworthy view, they weren't there. They weren't there when Jesus was there. They, they didn't even live in that area. Uh, and so you would expect they're going to make all kinds of mistakes if they're just making stuff up about things that happened in first century Palestine. So that's one thing we can look for. And all of this so far has to do with external sources. Information that you can't get just by looking at your Bibles. But there's also evidence that we can look for that doesn't take you outside of the Bible at all. So the next couple of pieces of evidence I want to talk about both have to do with um, the ways in which the Gospels are different from each other. 
So over here on the untrustworthy side, I'm going to put discrepancies. You'll often hear critics of the Gospels making a big deal about this. When you look at the Gospels, and uh, Bart Ehrman is uh, one guy who, who likes to make this point. He says, um, look, people are used to reading the Gospels vertically, is what he calls it, where you read, you read through Matthew, and then you read through Mark, and you're like, okay, that kind of sounds similar. And then you read through Luke, and you're like, yep, that sounded similar. It's the same thing again, right? But then what Ehrman says is, that, yeah, but now, now try reading them horizontally. Lay them out side by side and compare what Mark says about the resurrection to what Luke says about the resurrection and so on. And all of a sudden, you'll start noticing a bunch of little things where it seems like they're not exactly agreeing with each other. Uh, and so you'll get people claiming, look, the Gospels are full of contradictions or discrepancies or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and since when you have a disagreement between two sources, at most only one of them could be right, if there's a whole bunch of those discrepancies, then it looks like you've got a whole bunch of errors, right? And so that seems to reflect badly on the Gospels as historical sources. Give you an example of this. Um, which you may have heard of. It's a well-known example. Uh, actually, has anybody, does anybody know about the two genealogies of Jesus? Anybody heard about this before? You've heard about it? Yeah. Yeah. So, if you look in Matthew chapter 1, you get a genealogy of Jesus. If you look in Luke chapter 3, you get another genealogy of Jesus. Lay them side by side, and you'll notice that from Abraham to Jesus, they're almost completely different. Two different lists of names. What's going on there? Um, well, I'm not going to talk any more about that tonight. I think we might actually talk about that next week because we're going to be doing the infancy narratives, and that's kind of the right territory. But um, that's just an example of an apparent contradiction between the Gospels that sometimes critics make a big deal about. A um, couple of qualifications, though. I've put discrepancies under the heading untrustworthy view. But actually, just finding an apparent discrepancy between the Gospels is not automatically evidence for the untrustworthy view, and that's for two reasons. First of all, not all apparent discrepancies turn out to be actual discrepancies. So one question we have to ask when we find an apparent discrepancy is, okay, uh, is this merely an apparent discrepancy, which turns out to have a plausible harmonization, or is it an actual, genuine contradiction? And another question we have to ask is, how many discrepancies and how severe of discrepancies are we actually finding? Because when you look at ordinary human testimony, testimony that's very reliable, that's coming from eyewitnesses, that we can use and count on to answer historical questions, um, you actually expect there to be a certain amount of apparent discrepancies. It would be strange if there weren't any. It's often been pointed out that, look, if, they, if, if they're just telling exactly the same story, you know, that, like, sets off alarms. Like, okay, this looks like, you know, maybe they were colluding with each other or something, right? We don't actually expect that. When you've got independent eyewitness testimonies, invariably there are um, differences, including apparent discrepancies. Now, maybe the discrepancies are only apparent, maybe they're genuine. Either way, if you expect there to be discrepancies, even when the sources are very good sources, 
then that is not evidence against the trustworthiness of those sources. And so one thing we have to do when we're looking at the Gospels is, are, these, uh, are we seeing more discrepancies than we would expect if they were basically getting things right? And are we seeing worse discrepancies than we would expect if they were basically getting things right? Um, so that's, that's something to keep in mind, because when we're talking about evidence for the untrustworthy view, uh, m- um, the mere existence of an apparent discrepancy is not evidence it, for either view, really. Uh, okay, cool. Now, uh, there's one uh, host of a Christian radio show who described the next piece of evidence I'm going to talk about as being kind of like the opposite of a contradiction or a discrepancy. These are really cool. They're my favorite. They're called undesigned coincidences. Um, So here's what an undesigned coincidence is. It is a case where, and we'll just focus on the Gospels, though they don't necessarily only occur in the Gospels. Uh, It's a case where you get two or more of the Gospels, um, they say something different, but the difference isn't a disagreement or a discrepancy. It's instead a case where they seem to interlock in a way that looks unplanned. More specifically, it's like this. It's a case where there's, you got one of the Gospels, and there's this passing detail that just, you know, just some little thing that's not really important to the story that comes up. And then you go to another Gospel, and there's a different little passing detail, and one of those details explains the other detail. And it does it in this really subtle way so that it looks like nobody was planning for that to happen. It wasn't like somebody was like, oh, I'm going to put this in to explain this other thing in this other gospel. It looks like it just sort of happened on its own. And while, you know, things like that, you could always just, ah, just chance. Other things being equal, it seems like the best explanation for why they just fit together like that all by themselves is because the people writing the Gospels were telling you what actually happened. Because reality just sort of fits together, right? It's what actually happened. Let me give you an example of an undesigned coincidence. It's my favorite example. It also seems to be a lot of other people's favorite examples. This one gets used a lot, but here it is. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, you get John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And one of the things that John tells us that none of the other Gospels say is that before Jesus Uh, performs this miracle, he turns to one of his disciples named Philip, and he says to Philip, hey, Philip, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but Philip, where can we get food to feed all these people? And then the story goes on from there. Now, if you go over to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, you get um, Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Luke does not say a word about Philip. Philip really isn't even a character in Luke's gospel. He really doesn't show up. Nothing about Philip in Luke's account of the feeding of the 5,000. But Luke tells us something that John doesn't. Luke mentions, just kind of in passing, that this event, the feeding of the 5,000, took place right outside of this little fishing town called Bethsaida, which was on the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Um, okay, so two tiny little details, like, okay, who cares? All right, so it took place near Bethsaida. So Jesus talked to Philip, whatever. Go back to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, 
and chapter 12, either one of them, scenes that are totally unrelated to the feeding of the 5,000, totally different scenes, it comes up in passing that Philip is from Bethsaida. So it looks like what's going on is Jesus is saying, hey, Philip, you're from around here. Where can we get food to feed these people? But notice, in order to, to see that connection, we had to pull together a bunch of tiny little details from a bunch of totally separated places. It doesn't look like anybody like set that up like an Easter egg for scholars to find thousands of years later. Like, it looks like it just, just sort of fit together on its own. And the question is, when you find these little connections over and over and over again in the Gospels, in the Paul's epistles, in the book of Acts, what's the best explanation for that? Is it just dumb luck that this just keeps happening? Uh, is it that somebody was just really, really clever about sneaking in these, like, extremely absurdly subtle connections that no one was likely to notice? Or is it that, well, reality just fits together all on its own. So when people tell the truth, sometimes you get these little connections. That's the idea. That makes sense? Okay, good. Uh, I've been talking about evidence that we can get by comparing uh, the Gospels to themselves, but these two were both involved cases where the Gospels are uh, different from each other. There's also evidence that you can find by looking at the ways in which the Gospels are similar to each other. So here I'm going to put um, multiple attestation within the New Testament. So we already, when I, when I talked about direct confirmation by external sources and indirect confirmation and so on, right, that covers um, cases like Josephus and Tacitus where you have people... Uh, outside of the Christian community confirming or disconfirming things that the Gospels claim. But you can also find uh, documents that are in the New Testament that can help confirm things that the Gospels claim. And that's because of this important feature of the Bible that I think came up earlier, that it's actually a collection of different documents written by different people in different circumstances. Because of that... The documents in the Bible are sometimes, not always, but sometimes independent of each other. And so when independent documents in the Bible both report the same thing, you have multiple independent attestation to that thing, right? It's like you hear a news report that um, Trump died or something, and you're like, should I believe this? And then you hear another news report that's it seems to be independent of that one. It seems to be saying the same thing, right? You've got more evidence than you had before. Uh, you've got this other source that's confirming what the first one said. Well, that happens in the Gospels and in the New Testament more generally sometimes. And we do have to be careful here because Matthew and Mark, uh, sorry, Matthew and Luke, I mentioned earlier, they both used Mark as one of their sources. So sometimes they report the same thing, but it's not independent, right? So you can't say, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all three say that, that uh, Jesus called 12 disciples, so that's three sources for... No, that's one source. Um, well, actually, that's debatable. Uh, sorry. It, it's, it's trickier with the synoptics. So there are some places in the synoptics where it seems pretty clear that they do have independent sources, and there are some places in the synoptics where it seems pretty clear that they don't, that they're all just copying Mark. And so it's a little bit tricky. Um, 
John seems mostly to be relying on sources independent of the synoptics. He may have been aware of the synoptics, but he seems to be mostly using his own sources. And on the trustworthy view, uh, most of those people would say his sources were his own memories. He was just telling you what he remembered. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the point is, uh, sometimes even within the New Testament, you can get multiple independent attestation to an event. Example, Mark tells us about the um, Last Supper where Jesus institutes the Eucharist. He takes the, the bread and the wine and gives them this new symbolic meaning and so on, right? Uh, Matthew and Mark, or sorry, Matthew and Luke both follow Mark in this. Um, it's possible that Luke is actually using an independent source as well as Mark, but forget about that. Let's just say, let's say it's one source. We've got Mark and a couple people who copied Mark. John doesn't say anything about this, so we can't use John. But if you go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll find that Paul also describes this event. And so, and 1 Corinthians is, is almost, uh, most scholars think that this is independent of the Gospels. Like, it, Mark wasn't copying Paul's letter when he wrote his Gospel, and Paul definitely wasn't copying Mark because Mark didn't exist yet when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Uh, and so, it looks like there we've got a case of independent attestation to an event in the life of Jesus. Yeah, so traditionally, um, John uh, was may have been just like a teenager when he was Jesus' disciple, and traditionally he lived to a very old age, and because in fact there was this rumor going around about that some people thought Jesus uh, had predicted that he was going to live until the second coming of Christ, and in his gospel he seems to put something in there to kind of squelch this rumor and saying, no, 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 that's not what he said. It, it was something like that, but it wasn't quite that. Um, but yeah, there is some evidence that John lived to a very old age, 80s, 90s maybe. A uh, couple of things about this, and all of this is things other people have said. I'm not giving you anything original. I'm not always citing my sources, but if you want to know where I'm getting this from, just ask me after. Um, so some things people have said about this. Um, first, think about the kinds of things that got chosen to be written in the Gospels. They were the momentous things, the things that really stood out. They weren't the tiny little, like, what I ate for dinner last Thursday kind of things, right? They were the Jesus just threw the, temple, the tables over in the temple kind of thing. But you'd remember that for the rest of your life. Um, the other thing is, yes, it's possible that written records were kept. In fact, there's evidence that the Gospels are using written sources that pre-existed them. Uh, and so it's, it's just because the Gospels are the ones we still have doesn't mean they were actually, the, it was the first time anybody had ever written anything down about Jesus. That's actually very unlikely. Uh, and then the other thing is that um, there's some evidence that people in the ancient world were much, much better at remembering things than we were because um, with lower rates of literacy and things like this, it was an important skill for them to have in a way that it's not for us who have, we have Google and we have, um, you know, we were, we're pretty much all literate in this culture, right? Uh, and so we're not as practiced and skilled in memorization as especially um, the disciples of a rabbi would have been. It was a huge part of their job was to be really, really good at just memorizing huge amounts of information like from the Torah and what their their rabbi was teaching and things like that. Um, so those are some things that can be said when it comes to like, well, would John have remembered all that stuff? 
Um, yeah, so Patrick just pointed out, in addition to the things that I said that we know um, from, yeah, I think it's in the Gospel of John, right? Where that's, yeah, in the Gospel of John that, that the, the, uh, Jesus promised that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, would help the disciples to remember uh, what Jesus had taught and things like that. So there's that too. It helps to have God on your side. <laughs> okay, um, let's see if I can get through the rest of this. We are almost done. Uh, multiple attestation in the New Testament. Um, I'm trying to pair these up in ways that sort of make sense. Some of them make more sense than others. The, the one I want to put across from that under untrustworthy view is um, omissions, or you could call them silences. And here the worry is like this. You will often get people criticizing some, you know, event in the Gospels in the following way. They'll say, well, look, only Matthew says that that happened. None of the other Gospels say that that happened. And neither do any of our other sources from around that time. But surely if that had happened, you know, pick your favorite event to use for this kind of objection. Surely if that had happened, somebody else would have mentioned it. It wouldn't have been just Matthew or whoever, right? Uh, and so a lot of people take that to be evidence for the untrustworthy view because it's evidence against the historicity of the offending, you know, pericope or whatever, little piece of the gospel that we're talking about. Example of this um, from the Gospel of Matthew, actually, that's why I used Matthew. Uh, it's not the only case, but um, you guys remember the story. It's in Matthew's infancy narrative about how Herod the Great gets really paranoid when he hears these rumors that there, this new king of the Jews has been born. And so he sends his mercenaries to go and slaughter all the uh, babies in, in Bethlehem, right? Matthew is the only gospel that mentions that. And Luke even has an infancy narrative. He tells you about the birth of Jesus, doesn't mention that. None of our other sources from uh, around that time have at least any clear references to that event. And so you'll get people saying, look, surely if something like that had happened, it would have drawn all kinds of attention and other people would have mentioned it. But only Matthew says this. And so they'll say, look, Matthew must be making it up, right? It, it, if it really happened, he wouldn't be the only one talking about it. Um, that's how this kind of argument goes. Well, we might be talking about that case next week, because again, next week we're going to be looking specifically at the infancy narratives. I'm not going to say anything more about it right now. Um, I do, though, want to say something in general about this argument. And once again, here's a nice little piece of wisdom from Tim McGrew. He's got an awesome paper where he examines this argument. And he argues that actually if you look at um, things that we just know for sure happened historically, that we, we're very confident about, you can find all kinds of like inexplicable omissions where it's like, well, why didn't that person mention this event? We know it happened, and surely that person would have wanted to say something like that, but they didn't. And McGrew argues that there are so many cases like this that it shows that this kind of argument is just flat out unreliable. Now, I'm not sure if he's right about that. Um, his paper isn't an empirical one. He does give you a lot of examples, but he doesn't do anything like a statistical, scientific study of like, okay, you know, how many cases are there like this? How frequent are they? And I'd like to see something more like that. 
But at any rate, he, does, he has, I think, cast some doubt on whether this should be taken as evidence for the untrustworthy cases of omissions. Maybe, maybe not. Um, just to give you an example, one, one of the examples he likes to use is um, Ulysses S. Grant has these memoirs of the Civil War where he writes day by day like what happened in the Civil War and he never mentions the Emancipation Proclamation. That seems like, like how did you miss that? Um, that seems like that was one of the most important things that happened. Another example he uses is of Marco Polo who went through China and wrote about all the things going on there, never mentions the Great Wall of China. We're pretty sure that that was there, but uh, he didn't mention it. We don't know why. Just didn't, didn't want to include it, I guess. Let me try to squeeze in one more pair of things here. Um, embarrassment. Well, this will be the, the last one we cover. Um, well, this one and its counterpart over here. Uh, the trustworthy view. So, historians use what is called the criterion of embarrassment to try to figure out what's historical and what isn't. And here's how that works. They say, like, look, all right, if you're reading a source and there's a detail in that source that would have been embarrassing or uncomfortable uh, or something like that for the person writing the source or for his audience or whatever, um, that's a pretty good reason, other things being equal, to think that that guy didn't make that up. It's also a pretty good reason to think that he didn't just sort of uncritically swallow it, right? Like, if it's something that it would have, it would have been uncomfortable or embarrassing, like, I don't really want to, uh, you know, you're not going to include that unless you're convinced that it's true. That's roughly the idea behind the criterion of embarrassment. There are lots and lots and lots of details in the Gospels which arguably satisfy this criterion. I'll give you one example. And... We'll be learning about more of them as the class goes on, of course. But here's, here's one example. It's a really well-known example because it gets talked about all the time. So you might have heard it before. Uh, Easter morning, the women at the tomb. All the Gospels tell us that the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women and that the first people that Jesus appeared to in his resurrected body were women. Now, here's the deal. In the culture in which the Gospels were written, and this was like a very patriarchal, misogynistic culture. And so women's testimony was regarded as, at best, second class. They were, they were thought of as like unreliable sources. And so whether or not the Christians themselves bought into that idea, they're in a culture where it does them no good if their main and sort of incredible claim depends on the first witnesses being people who were viewed mistakenly but nevertheless viewed as being uh, unreliable witnesses right if you're trying to get people in this greco-roman world to believe your story about a resurrection and you're just making it up you would not make up a story that makes it harder for you to convince those people but that's precisely what that feature of the resurrection story did in that culture, given the way that women were viewed. Um, so that's one example of the 
criterion of embarrassment. So it's a reason to think that the story about the women being the first witnesses of the resurrection was not invented. Um, okay, and then across from that, sort of related, I guess, embellishments. This, this category is a little bit weird. Um, so there are lots of places in the Gospels where critics of the Gospels will say something like, oh, this was just made up, right? The, the author is just embellishing the story to promote a particular theological view. A lot of times those embellishments, the argument that there's an embellishment depends on this other evidence. If you didn't have these other reasons to think that we couldn't trust the Gospels, then there really isn't a good reason to think that the claim of embellishment is true. It might be, it might not be. But I think maybe that there are some cases where independently of this other evidence, one could make an argument that eh, it looks like this might be an embellishment here. And insofar as that's the case, this might count as an independent line of evidence. Um, so I'm including it as an additional criteria. Okay, uh, there's more that we're not going to cover. These are some of the main bits of evidence that we'll be looking for, but that is definitely enough for tonight. So we'll end it.